Hear now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O oh God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days. And the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, if you uh, ask the graduating class of 2023 what it is that they hope to do with their degrees, with their diplomas, uh, I doubt that very many of them will tell you that maybe after a lot of hard work, they hope to land a position somewhere in middle management. Uh, middle management has uh, something of a reputation in our culture as the kind of no man's land in the modern corporation. Uh, it, it's not quite boots on the ground. It's not quite head in the clouds. It's like Absalom hanging there between heaven and earth, right in the middle. Uh, between the thinkers and the doers, uh, between the leaders and the followers. And quite frankly, most of us imagine that we are far more important than that. And so we have developed uh, something of a distaste for positions of middle management. That's not where most people hope to end up when they set out. Think about every movie and every sitcom you have ever seen about life in a corporate setting. I will almost bet you uh, that middle management is portrayed as the buffoons, the time wasters, the bad guys. Uh, think about the way that we imagine that we can get a better deal 
when we're buying a car, when we're uh, getting a cell phone plan, if we can skip the sales department and we call it cutting out the middleman. Think about the way that when your company announces another round of spending restrictions, it is the people in the middle who start polishing their resumes first. Well, in the wilderness of Hazaroth, Miriam and Aaron bristled. They bristled at the thought that it seemed like Moses got to be the CEO while they were stuck in middle management. And while they bristled, they also grumbled. While they grumbled, God also listened. It wasn't long before he came down to teach them that there is no leader in his kingdom who is not also a servant first. Now, there are lessons in this chapter uh, for us uh, about leadership, conflict resolution, and envy, and uh, ambition, and all sorts of things like that. But the most important lesson that we find here in this chapter is when we learn about the servant that God has sent, the one he has sent to be the middleman, the mediator between God and his people. If you're reading the SV, you'll notice that, that our text divides into two paragraphs, verses 1 through 9 there, where God defends his servant Moses, and then verses 10 to 16, where God gives mercy to these sinners. That's how we're going to approach this passage, two halves. Uh, first, God's servant, and second, God's mercy. God's servant and God's mercy. Now, our text begins with this familiar theme. There are dissatisfied people, and they are grumbling in the wilderness. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also, this is the way that power struggles often start. It begins when, when there is an underlying uh, ambition to have the authority that belongs to somebody else. But you know you can't just come out and say that that's what you want, right? So you have to find some parallel reason. You, you use maybe the, the classic ad hominem. You find some personality quirk, some little flaw about this person who has the authority that you want as a reason to console yourself with the fact that their authority can be sidestepped. Your authority, actually, your opinion and your leadership uh, is just as good as theirs. It happens in families all the time when we don't want to follow uh, the authorities that God has instituted. It happens in churches probably more than we'd like to admit. Uh, in this case, the smokescreen that Miriam and Aaron raised about their brother Moses was the issue of this Cushite woman that he had married. Uh, most likely, this is a second wife. It could be Zipporah. Uh, there's a chance that we could interpret it that way, but most likely, this is a second wife. Maybe Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, had died. Moses uh, had remarried. Uh, we don't know, but the King James says she was an Ethiopian. That's an acceptable paraphrase uh, of Cushite. In the Bible, Cush generally refers to uh, what we today would look back on and call the kingdom of Nubia uh, that bordered Egypt to the south. And Nubians uh, are very dark-skinned black Africans. And so Moses' brother and sister are complaining, first of all, because of this interracial marriage that Moses had entered into. 
And then they finally got around to the real core of their complaint. That was that they were just as special as Moses was anyway, weren't they? He didn't have a right to claim sole leadership over the people. Now, in a sense, the, the story so far has prepared us for this. Uh, chapter 11, we, we read it together last week, and there we heard Moses cry out to the Lord that he can't do this anymore. He can't bear the burden of all of this people all by himself, and the Lord shows up to say, well, you don't have to, actually. And so God pulled out 70 men, 70 elders of the people, and he gave them his Holy Spirit. He equipped them to be leaders and administrators and middle management there in Israel, and he sent them out to be a help to Moses. But among those 70, apparently, Miriam and Aaron were left out. They were already both leaders in Israel in their own right. Aaron, of course, was the high priest. He was the most sanctified man in Israel. He was one of the holiest men set apart for the Lord. Now, Miriam was the leader of the spiritual women. You remember that, Exodus 15, when they came out, she led the other women with this prophecy of praise. They already have leadership in, in Israel. They both apparently received and shared God's word with the people. But here in this case in chapter 11, they were on the outside. They saw Moses communicating with God. They saw the elders filled with the Spirit. And they felt envious over what they didn't have. And in their envy, they spoke up against Moses. And verse 2 says that the Lord heard it. He always does, by the way. The Lord always hears our grumbling and our complaining, even if nobody else does. We don't know how far the cancer of their words spread throughout the camp. We don't know if they spoke only to themselves, just among their family tent. We don't know if rumors began to spread about what they thought of Moses. We don't know who else heard it, but we do know that the Lord heard it. And he always does. Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and 36. Jesus gave us that classic phrase. It explains what's going on with Miriam and Aaron. Jesus says that out of the abundance, the mouth speaks. They spoke against Moses, and it was a reflection of what was inside their hearts. But then Jesus says, and on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that leaves their lips. The Lord always hears. And when Moses' siblings rejected God's leader, the Lord heard that too. He heard their envy, and he heard their grumblings, and the Lord came down to defend his servant. Now there's an irony in the text in, in the way that the Lord defends him. You notice uh, that when God shows up, he begins by drawing attention. Verse 6, he says, hear my words. Now, what was the boast that Miriam and Aaron made? Their boast was that, you know, we hear the word of God too. God speaks to us as well, doesn't he? They also were recipients of God's word, but now it is the word of the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, uh, that will call them to account. And then, this is a side note, but I'm thinking about marriage a lot, so you're going to get it. Uh, this is a side note. Uh, notice that the Lord does not say a word about Moses' marriage to this Cushite woman. This was the initial problem that they raised, and the Lord ignores it altogether. 
And he ignores it because there's nothing wrong with it. There was nothing wrong with Moses marrying a Cushite woman so long as she believed in the God of Israel, just like there was no problem with Boaz marrying a Moabitess, Ruth. Just like there was no problem with Perez marrying a woman from Jericho so long as she embraced the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In the Bible, there's no prohibition. There is no problem with what we today call an interracial marriage, a marriage across ethnicities. There is an absolute ban in the scriptures on marrying outside of the faith. Christians who marry must marry only in the Lord. But it means for you young people, if you are looking for a husband you're looking for a wife, or you parents, if your children are looking for a spouse, the number one question you have to ask about a potential partner has nothing to do with the color of that person's skin or their accent or where their parents are from. The number one question is, does this person love the Lord? Can we grow together in our faith? As I said, that's a side note. But it's important. This passage is not, first of all, about marriage, but it's about God's servant. And so the Lord defends his servant, and he defends him by defending his own choice of Moses. Notice what he says. The Lord says, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. This is the very foundation of the doctrine of God's revelation. It is the fact that revelation is an act of God, not an act of man. All that we can know, all that we can discover, all that we can find out about the God of the universe is discoverable and understandable because God has desired to make himself known. And this is true when we talk about what we call general revelation. Uh, the things in creation that we can see that tell us about God's power and glory and goodness. Uh, he's left his thumbprint, we might say, on all the things that he has made. And he's done it in such a way that we can be without excuse. We know something of who God is because he has revealed himself. It's also true when we get to special revelation what we now have today written down for us in the Word of God, God's direct verbal communication to His people. It is an act of God, not an act of man. So God sent His prophets, and He sent His apostles, and He sent them to write down His scriptures so that we can know God's will, so that we can know His character, so that we can know how to turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ to flee from the wrath that is due to us for our sins. But revelation is an act of God. And the Lord is sovereign over how and to whom he makes himself known. So yes, says the Lord, there are other prophets. You can find them. In fact, Aaron and Miriam were other prophets. The Lord did speak to them, but God says there's a difference. God spoke to them, but he did so, he says, in visions and in dreams. Verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. Moses, he says, is faithful in all of my house. And then verse 8, with him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. It might be that it's not until we get to verse 8 that we understand what God meant in verse 6. Verse 6, he says, I speak in dreams, 
and I speak in visions. There are some of these things that seem rather impressive. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Lord would speak today in dreams and visions we might want? We might uh, wish that God would do that, but if you could speak to those prophets of old, those holy men carried along by the Spirit of God after they had their dreams and their visions and say, what did you see? Tell me what God revealed. Very often they might go, I'm not entirely sure. God revealed some things, but, but he left other things cloudy. God showed me a little bit, but, but not as much as I wanted. Do you remember Daniel? Daniel chapter 8, he receives his great vision of the ram and the goat. Uh, this vision about things that are going to happen between kingdoms uh, in the future. And he even receives the angel Gabriel who appears to show him and, and to interpret for him. He uses uh, the, the names of the kingdoms of the earth, Medo-Persia and the kingdom of Greece. Uh, and the angel Gabriel interprets some of this vision that he has. But when it's over, Daniel gives us a summary. Daniel chapter 8, verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And then I arose and I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. It's a rare look into the way that things very often happened. God revealed himself in visions and dreams, and sometimes there were things that were clear, sometimes there were things that were appalling. Not so with my servant Moses, says the Lord. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, not in riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord. Even with all of this, there are still some things for us that are hard to understand. Because God says that, that Moses saw the form of the Lord. It means he, he saw some visual representation. It's the same word that we find in the second commandment that when the Lord says, you shall not make for yourself an image. Right? A representation. You shall not fashion for yourself something to represent visually to you who God is and what he's like. But he says Moses saw a visual representation. He saw a form. But he didn't see God unveiled in his glory. That seems to be what Moses wanted after the golden calf incident. And he says, let me, let me see your glory. And the Lord says, you, you can't. That's not possible. No one can see my face and live. So what form did he see? It's unclear. He saw something. And then the Lord says that he speaks mouth to mouth, but even then God is condescending to our, our human understanding. God, of course, doesn't have a mouth like you have a mouth. He does not produce words uh, by, by passing breath through vocal cords and, and lips uh, and articulating syllables. He, that's not how it works. And yet, uh, he spoke audible words that Moses heard, that he could perceive with his ears, that he could write down, that he could take and deliver to the people who were outside the tabernacle. And that is where God's defense of Moses is unmistakable. He has spoken to Moses so that Moses will speak to the people. He has made him to be a mediator. He has chosen him as a servant. Revelation is an act of God, and he declares himself and reveals himself to whoever he sees fit. But the Lord in his sovereign choice has chosen Moses to be his mediator. He has made him his hand-picked administrator to take the things of God and deliver them to his people. And it means that by rejecting God's servant, Miriam and Aaron have rejected God's choice. 
By rejecting God's choice, they have rejected the Lord himself. This is why the final line in verse 8 hits with so much impact. I speak to him clearly, says the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? I think the spiritual application ought to be obvious for us. It is a fearful thing to reject the servant of the Lord. There are other sins mixed in here. Don't get me wrong. There there are other directions that we could take this. There is envy and there's prejudice and there's backbiting and there's pride and there is covetousness. But the sin that the Lord takes most seriously in this instance is the rejection of his mediator. No one can speak a word against the servant of the Lord and be held guiltless. So in this first half, the Lord defends his servant. In the second half, God gives mercy to sinners. Even here, though, in in verses 10 to 16, notice the way that the whole thing hinges on this man in the middle. So verse 10, after the the anger of the Lord fell on Miriam and Aaron, the presence of the Lord was taken away. Verse 10 tells us, when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Notice that double mention, behold. It means, look at this. It means, can you believe it? Can you imagine, here's this woman, a picture of death, right in the middle of the tabernacle. A moment ago, she stood before the Lord, sound and healthy and and full of vigor, and now she's standing there covered from head to toe in scaly, flaking, uh, festering skin. Scholars love to point out the irony here. Uh, the fact that this description of Miriam says that she was like snow, that is very, very white. They love to point that out because the original complaint was that Moses had married a very black woman. And now here's Miriam standing in skin that is so white that it is grotesque and it is unnatural. And I'll let you make of that what you will. And, And potentially we are supposed to make a connection between the outward appearance here. But far more importantly is the fact that that with this punishment, God is exposing Miriam's boasting. He's showing it for sinful and empty as it really was. She and her brother had claimed that they too shared an intimacy with the Lord. They had access to him like Moses. They came near to him, and and he speak to them. They, too, were so close, they could hear his voice. They, too, could speak the word of God to his people. They, too, were chosen instruments to be a blessing to his covenant people. But now she has been struck with this incurable uncleanness. As we see in in Aaron's prayer immediately after this, her, her leprosy was a death sentence. There is no access for Miriam to the Lord's presence anymore. There is no opportunity for Miriam to be a blessing to the people anymore. There was no use for her leadership in Israel anymore. The only thing she had to look forward to was separation and death outside the camp. That's where you put unclean people. So the rest of the nation will not be infected 
uh, with their disease. In other words, the Lord has passed a sentence on Miriam, a judgment that makes her sin visible to the watching world. He took that that uncleanness and that rebellion that was in her heart, and he put it on her skin, every inch of her body, so that everyone would always see it. Now, if you're sitting there wondering, like I was wondering earlier this week, why it is that Miriam seems to get leprosy and Aaron gets nothing? The answer uh, is that Miriam was the primary complainer in this. It's hard to represent in English, but if you go back to verse 1, the main verb there is singular, and it is feminine. Miriam spoke, that is, together with Aaron, against Moses. If there was a pronoun there, it would be she. In fact, it is a very clear marker, because you remember that in almost every chapter, as we begin, uh, it begins with, and he spoke. And he spoke the Lord to Moses. And he spoke the Lord to Moses. And he spoke the Lord to Moses, chapter 12. And she spoke, Miriam and Aaron, against Moses. This is meant to stop us in our tracks. Now, Aaron obviously was involved. And the main verb in verse 2 is plural. They said. But Miriam was primary here. And in this rebellion, it was Miriam who bore the penalty of their sin where everybody else could see it. So it was unmistakably the judgment of the Lord. Because it was, Aaron cries out for two things. First, he cries out concerning the sin that they shared. And then he cries out for Miriam's life. And it's interesting, isn't it, that in that moment, uh, here's Aaron, the man whose job it is in Israel to make intercession for sinners, and he knows exactly where to go to find mercy when he needs it. And so he cries out in prayer, but he doesn't pray to the Lord. He prays to Moses. He prays to God's mediator. Aaron cries out, verse 11, Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, that's a lowercase l, O my Lord, do not punish us. Let her not be as one dead. Aaron prays to Moses. Moses prays to the Lord. And the Lord answers his people through the prayers of the man in the middle. I hope you recognize that this elevates Moses to a very high position in Israel. He is the mediator who makes intercession for God's priests. He is the spokesman who reveals God's word to his prophets. He is the leader whom God has chosen to be the faithful shepherd and servant over his household. The primary lesson here in Numbers chapter 12 is that God is showing us that Moses is utterly and absolutely without equal among the leaders under the old covenant. There was no one else like Moses. There is no prophet, there is no priest, there is no king who is entrusted with leading and interceding for God's people quite like Moses was. Not that he wanted that job. And so we go back and we read that line in verse 3, Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And we wonder if Moses was cheeky enough to put that in there himself, or, or maybe, I don't know, maybe Joshua added it later when he was cleaning up the manuscripts. 
Right? But we also remember the way that God appeared to Moses at the bush in Exodus, and he called him, he commissioned him, go down to Egypt, gather my people, lead them into the land. And remember the way that, that Moses balked and he doubted and he tried to get out of it. Lord, please send somebody else. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the man in the middle. That's more than I can bear. So Moses wasn't the mediator because he wanted to be. He was the mediator because God chose him. And when Miriam and Aaron fell under the judgment because of their sin, the Lord met them with a double mercy. The first mercy was that there was a mediator there to pray for them. The second mercy was that God listened. Moses' prayer was not very long. Uh, even in English, it's only six words. Two of them are please. There's not a lot of substance to this prayer. It wasn't very long, but it was effective. That's what James tells us. The faithful prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It availeth much more even when that man is the servant of the Lord, the one who represents God's people, who carries them to the Lord, who is able to give them forgiveness and hope. So the Lord prayed and God, I'm sorry, Moses prayed uh, and the Lord answered Moses' prayer immediately. We're not told directly that Miriam was healed of her leprosy. But we are told that she was to be kept outside the camp only for the minimum period of time for those who had been cleansed of an uncleanness. It means that she was healed. It means that God listened to his mediator, and it was an assurance that her guilt had been taken away. Her shame remained. Her shame remained for seven days as a visual warning for all those who would uh, follow in her sinful footsteps. And so for seven days they waited. For a whole week, the whole camp waited while everyone outside in the camp heard the story of what happened inside in the tabernacle. They heard about how Moses' own siblings rose up against him. They heard about how the prophet was without honor in his own family. The people heard about their rebellion. They heard about God's judgment. And they heard about Moses' prayer and God's forgiveness. They might have said, why are we waiting here? We're so close to the promised land now. We're almost there. What are we doing? Why aren't we moving? And they'd say, well, you know what happened to Miriam, don't you? We're waiting for her. God is restoring her. God is bringing her back in. God is giving her mercy, but we have to wait for repentance to work its fruit of restoration. We have to wait on Miriam. So they did. Seven days they waited for mercy to bear its fruit. And that's where the story of Numbers ends. At least chapter 12. The reality is, if we stop reading the story there, it becomes for us a very nice little moral lesson. Something to fold up and put in our pocket and, and keep for a rainy day. Something from uh, long ago and far away. And we can learn lots of ways and how to deal with one another and how to submit to authority, right? If the sum total of Numbers chapter 12 is the uniqueness of Moses, that's our only takeaway. Something that we have to, to shoehorn into a very different cultural setting. And so maybe you say, well, you know, folks, today we, we read God's word and we have to learn to be content with where God has placed us. Or we say, you know, we, we read God's word and we need to learn to respect the authorities that God has chosen. 
Or maybe we read God's word and, and we have to learn not to give in to temptations to, to entitlement or, or to uh, ethnic superiority. And if Numbers was all that we had, those would all be perfectly fine places to start. But if we want to read Numbers like Christians, we have to go farther. Like people who have received this word, not just from Moses, but through the ministry of God's greater mediator, through Jesus Christ. This is how we have to read this passage, actually. We, we have no option if we're believers, because this is how the New Testament interprets this passage for us. Hebrews chapter 3 quotes Numbers chapter 12. There it's making the case. You might want to turn there with me. We're going to look at a little bit of it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3 is making the case that Jesus is the greater mediator of a better covenant. And it says that Jesus is worth more glory than Moses. Just as much more glory as the builder of a house is worth more honor than the house that he has made. That's a claim to divinity, by the way. Moses is the house and Jesus is his maker. That makes Jesus the Lord and creator. So this is the argument that's being put forward in Hebrews chapter 3. And there in verses 5 and 6, that's a reference to what we've just read. Verses 5 and 6, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now, if we were feeling uh, typological this morning, we could, we could draw a few interesting parallels between Moses and our mediator. Uh, we could say, of course, that Moses was rejected by his family, so was Jesus. Uh, we could say that Moses was meek and humble. He didn't defend himself when he was accused, and Jesus also was silent before his accusers. We could say that Moses was attacked by people who thought they should possess what God had given him. And in Luke chapter 20, Jesus tells this parable about the owner of a vineyard. And the owner says to himself, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, and perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. We could draw other parallels if we wanted to. But when we read Numbers chapter 12 like Christians, what ought to grab us are not all the ways that Moses is an awful lot like Jesus, but rather all the ways that Jesus is different. So Moses, it's true, heard the word of God clearly. He saw God's form in the cloud in the tabernacle, but Jesus is the word of God incarnate. He is the glory of God from all eternity, the one who took on flesh to make his Father known in a way that we could not know him apart from him. Moses, it is true, was meek and humble, and he prayed for those who rejected him and accused him. Jesus, we learn, was humble to the point of death. He not only prayed for the forgiveness of sinners, but he suffered and he died to take their sins upon himself. He rose again to bring restoration between sinners and their God forever. And of course, the most significant difference between Moses and our mediator is that Moses was a man who needed a mediator for himself. You don't need to make a chronicle of all of Moses' sins here at this time. But when he asked to see God's glory, 
his prayer was denied. It's not a request that can be granted to sinners. God said, man cannot see his face and live. And then by the end of Numbers, the Lord will pass a judgment on Moses. He'll say, you will never get to set foot in the land of promise because of your sinful anger in leading the people in the wrong way. Moses was a man who needed a mediator. And Jesus is the servant who brings mercy to all God's people. He is, as Hebrews says here in verse 1 of chapter 3, he is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. He is the living one. He is the perfect middleman. He is the one who became sin, who knew none of it. He is the one who always lives to make intercession for his saints. And so if we are reading numbers like Christians, our takeaway is twofold. The first is the word that we've already seen, that it is a fearful thing to reject God's servant. What a terrible sin to speak a word against Christ. What a terrible and fearful iniquity to grumble against his leadership. What a terrible thing to resolve in your heart that you will not submit where his word calls you to follow, that you will not trust what his gospel calls you to believe. What a terrible sin to reject God's servant. That's the first application. The second application is far better. And that is what a glorious mercy to have Jesus as your mediator. Job in chapter 9, verse 33. Uh, Job prayed concerning himself and the God of the universe. He said, would that there were an arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Moses couldn't do it. Mary can't do it. Buddha can't do it. Muhammad can't do it. Your good works can't do it. Your scientific understanding and your education and your achievement in life can't do it. But Jesus can. To lay his hands on you both because he's perfectly God and perfectly man, because he's perfectly righteous and yet perfectly gracious, because he's perfectly just and yet he gives perfect mercies to sinners who call out to him, and perfect forgiveness with our God forever. What a blessing to have Jesus as your mediator. I hope that you know him today, and I hope that you're trusting in him today. And if not, I hope that you will. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Father, we thank you for sending your Son to be our perfect mediator. We thank you for the mercy of forgiveness that comes to us only through him, by faith in his name. We thank you that he is the way and the truth and the life, and that through him we can come to the Father. Oh Lord, we thank you for so many who are gathered together, who are yours and who know you. And we begin with that statement every day of our lives, knowing that you are the one who has brought us to yourself through your Son. Oh Lord, it's not any work that we have done. And we praise you and we glorify your name. We pray that you would keep us ever trusting in the Lord, always abiding in him, always following where he leads us.
Father, we thank you for your work through Jesus Christ and by your Spirit in our lives. We pray that that work might increase and abound, that many others would come to know you and so be saved from their sin and death and hell forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.